Hi, I'm Shelby Morozik and I'm a person in long-term recovery. I started using heroin when I was 15 years old. My life kind of took a really drastic turn from there moving forward. I was in rehab by the time I was 16 and a felon by the time I was 18. I was just kind of numb to anything and everyone that was around me. I hurt the people that I love the most, um, especially myself. Um, I had lost my best friend to an overdose in 2014, and that's kind of where a spark had ignited, but I never fully um, dove into any thought of recovery. But I feel like from that moment forward, God was kind of speaking to me. Instead of taking responsibility for my actions, it was easier for me to say that God did this to me or God did that to me. And it was through the steps that I realized that I had done all of those things to myself and God was reaching out to me the whole time. I was so lost and so broken, and as soon as I allowed God to kind of just enter my life and kind of show me who it was that I didn't want to be anymore and the potential that I had of the person that I could become. I feel like I experienced God in the very first step um, because I had to admit to myself that I was powerless over drugs and powerless over my addiction, and I had to give that power to somebody greater than myself. And at the point and where I was at, um, any power was greater than my power, and I knew that I just, I had to turn to somebody and something. There's a cliche saying um, in the rooms where it says that God brought me through the 12 steps and the 12 steps brought me back to God. Hi, I'm Shelby and I've been in recovery for two years. And because of God and the 12 steps, I've been able to experience life for the first time. We are so proud of you, little girl. Ah, that's good stuff. Good stuff. I love what we're doing as a church, and I love that we get to celebrate life in many different aspects of it. And I love that we get to not only worship him, but get into the word today. So would you bow your heads with me? Father, uh, wow, so much to celebrate. Mostly you. We love you. Uh, it's been good to worship you. We want to hear from you. We admit before you right now that a pastor is never enough. And so we come to you and ask, would you speak during this time into our lives? And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, hi, I'm Rick, and I'm an addict to sin. It's supposed to be Alcoholics Anonymous. They give themselves away every Sunday, right? <laughs> oh, but man, I'll tell you what, I am really glad. We are in this series on the 12 steps, and we're calling it 12 Steps in Four Leaps. And over the last couple of weeks as we've been doing this, uh, each week, some of our addicts have come up to me and said, thank you so much for doing this. And then they said something that was curious. They said, it is so courageous that you guys are doing this series. I thought, it never occurred to me that this was courageous for us to do a series like this. And so I said, why? Why, why is that courageous? And they say, because other churches don't tend to want us. Ugh, are you kidding me? Like messy is the only kind of people we have, right? I mean, that's the only kind of people we have. And what your particular brand of mess is, that's just details at that point, right? But, but that's the only kind of people we have. And so uh, letting uh, our recovering addicts in, that's not hard for me. Like watching Shelby's story, man, I could watch Jesus' art of redemption all day long till the cows come home. Like that is not courageous. That is fun. Letting Pharisees in, that takes courage for me. Right? Like Pharisees are the super religious people who think their poop don't stink, right? Like letting 
ministry, uh, but it's ministry nonetheless. And so we love, we absolutely love our recovering addicts uh, to see the openness and vulnerability and transparency and humility in their lives, the way they're experiencing redemption, the way that they're experiencing transformational community. And, and when I see that, I'm like, I don't want the addicts to get all the goodies. Which you got to be careful what you mean by that, right? <laughs> you got to be really careful what you mean by that. But, but what, I, what I mean is like, I want all of us to be more like them. And so some of you are like, so where can we buy drugs? No, no, not the path to get there. Instead, the path is that all of us along with them start to delve into the 12 steps and we glean from that path as well. And so that's why we're doing this series. And instead of taking 12 weeks, we're doing them in four leaps. And here are the four leaps. Uh, The first was give up, and that covered the first three steps. And in that, we said, I'm a mess. I can't fix it. I give up, and I look to Jesus to be my Savior. And then the second leap that we took was last week, Pastor Jared did an amazing sermon on grow up. And that's covering steps four through seven. And in that, we took our moral inventory. I hope you did it. And that not only looked at resentments and stuff done to us, but got us to truth, which is stuff that I've done, my shortcomings. And I hope you've admitted that to God, to yourself, and to others. Because remember, you have to be known in order to be loved. And as a part of that leap, we're asking God, would you grow me up? So we did give up and we did grow up. And now this week we do make up, which is not about cosmetology. Okay, that's not what we're talking about here, right? But rather, it is about steps 8 through 10, and I want to jump right into it, and here's step 8. Step 8 says, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And you thought step 4 was hard right? Where you had to make that moral inventory. I mean, at least in step 4, I could still talk about harms done to me right? And and again, hopefully it moved me to the truth, my shortcomings. But nonetheless, step four, or excuse me, step eight is all about, I need to make a a list of all the people I've harmed, and I'm going to need a lot of paper. That's going to be a long list. And look at the second part there. Not only make that list, but then become willing to make amends to them all. Ooh, ouch. But I, I want you to know, one of the keys to healing and growth is to be able to say this, I am the biggest sinner I know. I am the biggest sinner I know. And it's quite logical. Listen, all of us sin all the time. Now, apart from God, who is it that witnesses 100% of my sin? It's me. I only see a fraction of your sin. I see 100% of my sin. I am the biggest sinner that I know. And whatever ill that you think of Rick McKee, I got to tell you, you are probably not accurate. It's probably way worse than that. I am the biggest sinner I know. But admitting my sin, I don't like that. We don't like that. I don't want to admit my sin. I don't want to face that uh, the way I've hurt others. Instead, I'd rather focus on how other people have hurt me. I'd rather focus on bitterness. I'd rather focus on blaming. I'd rather play the victim card till the day I die. And that is not the path to recovery. And so we, we see this work out a little bit in somebody in the Bible. His name's David, one of Israel's greatest kings. And maybe you remember the... Uh, very well-known story of his big sin, 
So what happened is David was up on the palace and it was time to send the army out to war. So he did. So all the armies went out to war. David's on top of his palace. He looks down and he sees a beautiful woman bathing naked. Her name's Bathsheba. And he lost it and he sent for it. He, he knows by that point that she is the wife of Uriah, one of his best friends and one of his generals that he sent out to battle. Perfect timing, right? So he sends for her, brings her into his palace, has sex with her, sends her away. Uriah's gone. Nobody's going to know we're good here, right? Oops, she's pregnant. Now, when Uriah returns from battle, he's going to go, baby bump, I didn't do that, right? Like, he's going to know. So, so David, in order to cover up a big sin already, he sends for Uriah, brings him back to the city, gets him drunk, sends him home to his wife, thinking he'll go home, he'll sleep with his wife because he's been at war for a while, he's hungry, so he'll do that, and then he'll, he'll think, oh, that was my child. Perfect cover-up, right? The problem is Uriah is an honorable man, and he leads men in battle, and he's saying, all my guys, they don't get to go to their home, they don't get to go to their wives. He sleeps on his doorstep, won't even go into the house. David's like, dang it! Dang it! And so now he has to send orders to the front, which he seals and has Uriah carry his own death warrant. Because what happens is the orders say when Uriah gets back, put Uriah at the front of the line, pull the armies back so that he's exposed and Uriah gets killed. He intentionally kills his friend in order to cover up his sin. Now this is a biggie. But what David wants to do, he wants to be in a position of blaming other people. Now he's got cause. Listen, if you read about David's life, he is the youngest of a lot of older brothers who ridiculed him, made fun of him, tormented him. It's, my, it's not my fault. My brothers did this to me. Or his father, Jesse. When Samuel the prophet came to say, hey, the future king's in your household. I don't know which one of your sons. Bring them in. I'm going to find them out and anoint him. When that happened, Jesse didn't even bring David in from the fields. Do you know what that means? My father never believed in me. My father never believed in me. It's his fault. Or what about when David conquers Goliath? He gets taken into Saul's household. Saul plays total head games with him. Like calls him in so that he could play music to soothe Saul. And then Saul throws a spear at him. This repeated over and over and over. You know what? It's Saul's fault. Do you know what Saul did to me? Or what about Bathsheba? What is this woman doing out bathing nude where I can see her? It's not my fault. It's her fault. Or what about Uriah? If he would just gone into his wife, we wouldn't be here right now. It's Uriah's fault. David wants to take the victim-blaming position, but then there is this very haunting verse in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27. Look at this. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And that is when you soil your royal robes right there. Because it's the thing that David had done. He didn't get away with it. And what I want you to catch from that is that when I stand before God someday, we will not be discussing other people's sins. We will not be talking about what was done to me. We will talk about what Rick had done. David's talking about what David had done. And David is so hesitant to acknowledge his sin, to acknowledge the way he had hurt people. And so what he wants to do is to condemn others around him. 
Now, part of the king's job was to render judgment on cases brought before him. And so God is going to use that through the prophet Nathan. And there's this really cool interaction. So God sends Nathan to David. And here's what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew it up with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Are you kidding me? Look at this. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. You see, David is so focused on other people's sin. He's so bitter that even after what he did with Bathsheba and with Uriah, her husband, he has the audacity to burn with anger over some guy who stole a lamb. And and so what David has done here is he has swallowed the bait, hook, line, and sinker, because he said that guy deserves to die, and now Nathan is going to, Set that hook. And we read in the very next verse this. Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is not good. This is not you the man. Uh-uh. It's not that kind of thing. Right? This is, this is way worse, right? You're the man. He deserves to die. You're the man. We love playing the victim. We love condemning other people's sin. But who is the biggest sinner in your life? You. You are the man. You are the woman. It's you. And so for David, this leads to a realization. uh, And he gets humble and he gets repentant. David says, holy crap, look what I've done. I'm the biggest sinner I know. I've hurt people and I can't blame others. And what it leads David to do is to write a song of repentance. And it's in your Bible. It's Psalm 51. And in that, he says this. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What does God want you to offer up in your worship? This is it right here, a contrite heart. Contrition, that's repentance. That's humility. See, God is not looking for perfect people. He's got none, except for one, and that's Jesus. And he became our savior and reconciled us by paying for our sin. And now what God is looking for is humble people, repentant people. That's the path to recovery. Now, One thing I want you to catch about this, though, is we're not just talking about the addicts. See, one of the things, when when it comes to making up and admitting your harms to people, we go, of course the addicts have to do that. Being addicts, they've hurt so many people, right? Okay, time out, time out. There's no way you have been a sinner without hurting people. 
Like that's all of us. Have you dated someone? Yeah, you've hurt someone, haven't you? Did you get married? <laughs> right? Did you get divorced? Oops, you've hurt somebody. Do you have kids? You've hurt them. Like all these parents who are so excited? <laughs> Buckle in. Right? You, you end up hurting your kids. And if you don't have kids, do you have parents? Because all of us have parents. You've hurt people, haven't you? You have extended family. You have coworkers. We have all hurt other people, and it eats at us. It decays and destroys. We feel guilt, and we feel shame from those things. And that guilt and shame is a pain that we must salve. And some of us, to salve that, has go- have gone to the bottle of alcohol. But others of us have gone to sip from other sins to numb that pain. See, so getting whole is not just about stop drinking. But it also has to be about addressing the underlying guilt and shame that leads to the drinking or to the other sin that you sip. We've got to deal with that stuff down there. You have to deal with that guilt and shame of how we have hurt others. Now, before we get there a little bit more, some of you might be saying, oh, wait a minute, others have hurt me. Okay, so, so have others hurt you? Of course. Of course, you're not the only sinner in this world. Of course, other people have hurt you. But I'll tell you what, I'm 50 years old and I've come to two crystal clear conclusions in my life. And the first one is this, people are horrible, right? Do I need to convince you of that? People are horrible. Like those bumper stickers that say mean people suck. Just take mean out of it. People suck. Like people are horrible. People are horrible. Here's the second conclusion. I'm a people. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I've done things that would make many of you reject me. Okay? There's things that go in my heart that are evil. I've hurt people. I still hurt people. I'm still married. So I'm still hurting at least one person, right? Uh, By God's grace, I'm still married. Listen, when I stand before God, we're not going to be talking about anyone else's sin but my own. I need to be more concerned about my sin than anyone else's. And can you think of this? Just dream for a moment. What would it be like if all of us went through life and we were much more concerned about our sin than other people's? Wouldn't that be awesome? And say, but pastor, that's not the way it goes. Legit. But you're not responsible for them. You're only responsible for you. And do you want to be a part of the problem or part of the solution? And regardless of all that reconciliation, what about the stuff bubbling down inside you, the guilt and the shame? Do you want to get healthy? Do you want to get whole? And so we got to deal with that. I need to take responsibility. I need to admit that, yes, while stuff's been done to me, I am where I am because of what I've done. I got to embrace that. Not to blame others, not to play the victim card. No. As long as you are in the position of victim, you will not get whole. And the reason why is when you're playing the victim card, you are all focused on what other people have done, their actions, their choices. And here's the thing, you can't control their actions and choices. The only one you can fix is you. And so to continually focus on other people's stuff, that won't get you there. I need to be more concerned about my sin, how I have hurt others. And there's great payoff when we do this. Look at Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one 
who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place. But check this out. You know where else he dwells? Look at this. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God's blessing abides there. And there is freedom and health and growth. And so we must go step by step, leap by leap down this path. And if you look at that passage, you'll notice it's built on two things. It's built, one, on a very high, very big view of God. And then a very honest view of self. (laughs) John Flavel said it this way. He said, they that know God will be humble. They that know themselves cannot be proud. So no more victim. No more blaming. I am the biggest problem in my life. It's time to own it. And so what step eight tells me to do is to make a list of all those I've harmed. What do you mean by harm? Well, the 12 and 12, the 12 steps and 12 traditions book, it, uh, it, it clarifies that and says it's any damage that you have caused to somebody which is physical, mental, emotional, or spiritual. I'm going to need a lot of paper, right? A lot of paper for that. Now, the first thing I want you to do, I want you to write that list this week. And then the first thing I want you to do after having completed that list is I want you to go to God and confess to him. Look what 1 John 1, 9, 9 says. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why is it just for God not to punish us but to forgive us? That's because Jesus already paid for the punishment. So it's only fair. It's already been paid for. It's only fair for God to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is where Jesus makes such a huge difference. Because see, without him, you are still going out in search of forgiveness. There's no internal security, no peace, nothing solid. There's no freedom. But with Jesus... You know it's already been paid in full. You are forgiven before God. Now you have a new identity as a child of God. And you are forgiven, and you are solid, and you are secure. There's freedom. So you're not going out to make amends in search of wholeness. Instead, you already have wholeness from God. Now you're going to live out of that wholeness, and that will lead us to make amends. Same action, different motivation already solid and secure in Christ. And that gives us the confidence then to move from step eight to step nine. And look at step nine. Made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Dang it. Can't it just be theoretical? Like in step eight, I I wrote it out and I said, I'm willing. Can't it just be theoretical? Well, sure. If all you want is theoretical healing, theoretical freedom, oh no, you want the real thing? Then no. Then you're actually going to have to do this and live this out in real life. See, this is put up or shut up kind of time. Were you really willing in step eight? Then it's time to get her done. 
to go make amends. And the Bible is clear. We have to approach other people to live this out. Look at the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. He said, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. See, God doesn't want empty religious ritual. What he wants is for us to do step nine. And he gets really specific, by the way, about what that can look like. Look in the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 33. Verse 14 and following, it says this. God was speaking. He said, again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. Yet, yet, if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery, and walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the sins that he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right. He shall surely live. So you see, this can't be some secret conversation between you and God. Yes, it's repentance with God, plus, plus, it's confession to the person you've hurt. And notice it's restitution. That means paying it back. And all that, of course, requires a really good apology. So I want to talk for a moment about practically how to apologize, because we're not good at it. I think we're really lousy of it. So let, let me give you an example of how not to apologize, and for that, we turn towards Angela. Yes. You two are apes. I expect you to apologize for that, Angela. I'm sorry that you're both morons. So, but you still said, I'm sorry. I called you morons. Still said it. Still said it. How much is that like us, right? As we live our relationships, I'm really sorry that you're a moron, right? It's not a good apology. Let me show you what a good apology looks like. It looks like this. Dear Olin, I'm sorry for karate chopping you in the privates. Doing that was wrong, your friend Eli. That's a good apology, and I would point out, well due. <laughs> like, that, was one, that one was due. But he said it's wrong. He said he's sorry. That's a good apology. Uh, we saw in Ezekiel that when you apologize, you're also supposed to make it right, to make restitution, right? Uh, so here's an example of bad restitution. So I hit your car and someone is watching, so I'm writing this note, blah, 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 still watching, yay, they're gone. Sorry, dude, here's some free soap. <laughs> faking, writing your, your info down, fake apology, fake restitution, right? Not good. Here's better restitution. Dear Chris, sorry, dude, I ate the rest of your pizza and breadsticks. I was really hungry and stoned. But that's no excuse. That's no excuse. That's a good line right there. I will buy pizza for all of us next week to atone for my crimes. Tyler. Now, I would point out that the picture of Tyler eating Chris's pizza is entirely unnecessary. Look how happy I am eating your pizza. Probably not good. But notice he really apologized. He's going to make up for it. That's good, right? Or I'll give you one more example of restitution. I'm sorry I slapped you in the face twice while I was drunk. And then a thing of bacon. Bacon is the high watermark of restitution, all right? 
That is good stuff right there. Okay. So let's talk honestly. How do we uh, apologize? The first thing you need to do is you need to bathe that thing in prayer. Before you actually contact the people, say the person, but let's admit the list is long, right? Before you contact, you got to bathe it in prayer. God, give me courage. God, would you give me receptivity that they'd be willing to hear me? Could we have good communication that they would understand I would hear them? Father, would you not, help me to not be defensive, to actually own my junk? And then, Father, would you lead us towards reconciliation? Pray, pray, pray. <clears throat> and then you need to own it. And when you talk to them, hopefully face-to-face, go up the hierarchy of communication. When you own it, go big or go home. And this is how you make an apology. Ready? It's right here. I did blank. Fill in the blank and be specific. Oh, I'm sorry I hurt you. No, that's general. I'm sorry I lied about you behind your back and gossiped about you and it hurt you, I know. You know? So I'd be specific. And then you say, it was wrong. Flat out, no excuses, no justifications. It was wrong. Well, you got to understand what I was dealing with. Nope, 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 nope. It was wrong. And I know it hurt you. This is where you're going to empathize with them and honor their pain. You might even say something like, man, if you had done this to me, I don't know if I'd even sit down with you right now. I'm so, man. And then you're going to say, I'm sorry. Do you know what the two hardest words to say in the English language are? Worcestershire sauce. But a second, a close second, is I'm sorry. So difficult for us to say. Now notice after I'm sorry, there is a period. I'm sorry, period. So what we're not saying is, I'm sorry that you're a moron. Right? I'm not saying, here's what we have. I'm sorry if that hurts you. I'm sorry that you feel that way. Okay? That is to say, I am sorry that you are such an overly sensitive piece of crap that that actually hurts you. You understand, that's not an apology, that's an accusation. I'm sorry, period. Listen, we have learned in our culture that you're never supposed to apologize, that that shows weakness. But I got to tell you, when you fail to apologize when you've hurt somebody, that is the high watermark of weakness and, and, and being a coward. Because you're running, you're hiding, you're deflecting, you're defending, you're blaming. You know what strength and courage is? When I have done something wrong to own it. And if you don't apologize, then you're going to live in bondage to your guilt and shame. But if you do apologize and you own it, then that is going to lead toward freedom. And then what you need to do is say, how can I make it right? That's the question of restitution which implies that I'm not just going to throw a token apology and go, well, I feel better, right? Because if you apologize over and over for the same thing without making any progress, then that's not an apology, that's manipulation. And so how can I make it right? And then you got to end with this question. This is where you go completely vulnerable. You're out there. Will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? And they may or may not, but that's only about reconciliation in your relationship. Okay? Once you've gotten to this point and asked for forgiveness, you have gone towards freedom. You're resolving the guilt and the shame in your life. That's your part. Now, some questions crop up as we look at something like this, and I want to bump through them. What if I lack strength? What if I lack the courage to do this? Here's what the big book says. 
If we haven't the will to do this, we ask until it comes. Later it says, we ask that we be given strength and direction to do the right thing. No matter what the personal consequences may be, we may lose our position or reputation or face jail, but we are willing, we have to be, we must not shrink at anything. All right, well, next question. What, should I even apologize to those who have hurt us? Again, the big book says this. It may be that he has done us more harm than we have done him. And though we, have, we may have acquired a better attitude toward him, we are still not too keen about admitting our faults. And then it says later, it says, his faults are not discussed. We stick to our own. Whew. That's courage. That's courage. And then another question comes up, well, what if they never knew one of the principles the 12, and 12, uh, 12 Steps and 12 Traditions book points out is it says that we did not only harm them, but in the process we harmed ourselves. And so even if they never knew about it, we still have to deal with the guilt and shame uh, as we've harmed ourselves, so we still need to apologize. And then a big question that comes up is this. Well, what if it doesn't go well? <clears throat> and for that, I want to turn to the serenity prayer. A lot of you are familiar with the serenity prayer. Here it is. God grant me the serenity to accept stupid people the way they are, courage to maintain my self-control, and the wisdom to know that if I act on it, I will go to jail. Not the serenity prayer. Not it at all. Here it is right here. Does God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference? It's a great prayer. It wasn't written for AA, uh, but it appeared in a newspaper in 1941 and it quickly got sucked into the rooms of AA and resonated with the alcoholics and now it's a part of the life of AA. I learned serenity prayer during my childhood. Addiction wove through my family as well. My dad was an alcoholic. His dad was an alcoholic. They're both dead now. Addiction has affected my family in other ways I'm not at liberty to, to say. But part of my childhood was spent around the drug rehab program. I was not in there myself, but I was around it. And so I, I uh, learned the serenity prayer fairly early. And it's so huge when apologizing. Because listen, when you are apologizing, there is so much that you cannot change. You cannot change the past in what you did. You can't. And you cannot change whether or not they will forgive you, whether or not there will be final reconciliation. You can't change that. But, but there is stuff you can change. My humility, my repentance, seeking forgiveness, seeking restitution. That's on me. So apologizing is your part. God, give me courage. But whether or not they forgive, that's not your part. God grant me serenity, or that means peace. God, give me peace about that. And may he give you the wisdom to know the difference between those. Either way, what we want to do in, in steps eight and nine, we're moving towards freedom from all that guilt and shame that drives us to do stupid stuff. And I hope this week you will fill out that list. And this might be an incredible week among the congregation of Redemption Chapel as we start to do business with each other and with the community around us. Can you imagine the size of this AA meeting right now and going out of here and doing steps eight and nine? Holy cow, that would be phenomenal. 
But once you're done, you're never done. <laughs> That's step 10. Look at this. Continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. You see, uh, the big, big book also says this. This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. The 12 and 12 says, it is a task which we may perform with increasing skill, but never really finish. We have to be humble, repentant people because Christianity is not about being good. It's about being bad. And so therefore we need a savior and we have one in Jesus and he is good. So now it's about humility and confession and repentance. And this should lead us to be publicly repentant often. Publicly and often. Listen, the scriptures have already outed you. Your secret's been told. We know that you're a bad sinner. Okay, you know the guy that has the crush on the girl and he won't admit it, but everyone around him knows it. And then finally he admits it and we're like, dude, we all knew, right? Okay, so when you come out of the closet as a horrible sinner, we're all gonna be like, look, we knew you were a sinner a long time ago, right? No surprise, you've already been outed, okay? Christians are horrible. And so we will not stand out by being perfect. Let us stand out by our humility and our repentance. And the reason it's important is because life is all about relationships. And from here to the day you die, you will be damaging those relationships. So to live well, you've got to be good at apologizing and cleaning that up. And so my blessing to you is this. May your last breath be an apology. That sounds like a curse, doesn't it? It's like, that's not a blessing. Okay, listen. You will mess up and hurt people around you till you draw your last breath in this fallen world. Take that for granted. That is going to happen. So the only question is, will you live the rest of your life cleaning it up and cleaning that stuff out and admitting your hurt and apologizing frequently so that you apologize up to the day you die? May your last breath an apology. And those are some hard steps, but some good work. And for that, I want to pray. Father, I pray that you would be with all of us this week as we make a list of those we have harmed, as we start to seek courage from you and start to make plans to make amends where we can and wherever it won't cause further damage. Father, lead us there, please, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.